Welcome back to Investing Experts. Great to have Chris DeMuth back on the podcast, longtime Seeking Alpha writer. He runs the investing group on Seeking Alpha called Sifting the World. He runs the hedge fund Rangely Capital and a whole lot more than that. Great to have him back on the show. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Chris DeMuth. Welcome back to the show. It's always nice to talk to you. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for having me again. For those who don't know you, maybe like synthesize in a line or two what you're all about and what you're focused on at Rangely Capital and sifting the world. And if you want to break the rules and add a line, that's fine. But, you know, not like an exposition. My wife always likes me to give a short version. She usually requests a single word. A word's a little hard. I'm an investor. I guess if I had to say one word, if I had a few sentences, uh, I would say my background's in public policy research. I'm very interested in data analysis. I'm very interested in thinking about complex subjective risks with a probabilistic framework. Um, so whenever there's hairy, ugly policy issues, whenever there's litigation issues, whenever there's the kind of thing where you might have some counterparties who are price insensitive for reasons unrelated to the underlying economic value, I like to take the other side. Uh, so that's Rangely Capital. That's me. Uh, I have a couple of great colleagues that I work with on uh, finding investment ideas and sizing them uh, and uh, do other things in my spare time. But when I'm working, I'm thinking about mispriced securities, generally with some kind of corporate action that's going to, for better or for worse, unlock the underlying value, uh, typically in the you know three to five years ahead. So given where we are this year, late August, uh, rounding the corner towards September, how are you thinking about the markets? What are you thinking about as, as you're looking broadly speaking? And you can narrow it down as you keep going. Sure. Um, Last year, 2022, so thinking about the calendar year, made a lot of sense to me. It was very cathartic, especially on the short side, especially looking at the kind of things that were uh, preemptively uh, getting crushed with the onset of reality, of real interest rates, of a cost of capital. Um, you had this kind of weird suspended animation uh, era where as long as there's no cost of capital, kind of the more dramatic the total addressable market, the more uh, of a story you have to say about what can happen over the next 10 years has very little cost. So you're just stuck with what is the most dramatic benefit that you can describe, which is a kind of a, a childish uh, and strange enterprise. Uh, and then as interest rates rose, you have a real cost of capital and you can't just do that anymore. And uh, a lot of uh, things that I thought looked uh, probably worth less and certainly worth much less than where they were trading uh, did badly. They kind of bounced back a lot this year. It's been a hard one on the short side. It's been a hard one for skeptics and debunkers and value investors on the short side. Uh, this month actually has been a very good one, but this year has been a very bad one for uh, 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 nonsense 
uh, getting kind of inflated. And weirdly enough, I guess the market's a discounting mechanism. It's done that as the interest rates actually rose as opposed to the prediction of them rising. Um, I don't think that'll last. Uh, I don't think it can last for years. Uh, a lot of these guys are kind of frantic uh, producers of press releases and uh, incremental uh, shares. Uh, you know, with, whatever their stock price is doing, the stock count is kind of going up into the right full time. Uh, and they kind of put out a press release for every little thing they do. So a lot of kind of never profitable tech. Um, interestingly, it was kind of on its last legs. And then the AI enthusiasm really saved it. Not only did it save it, but it saved a lot of the huge asset allocators, including SoftBank, uh, where they were going to just have to dump inventory on the market. Uh, and we're probably weeks away from kind of dramatically impacting the market. And then we're able to hang on because of AI uh, enthusiasm. Um, so that has some very good things in it that has some legitimate investments, but also has a lot of nonsense that it rescued. Um, on the long side, Ditto last year kind of started to have this revival of uh, small cap over large and value over growth, and that's kind of uh, dissipated a bit. I can say where I'm spending a lot of my time in energy and capital is really on two categories. Uh, the first is ESG service provider for buying all the stuff that ESG sells price insensitively for mandates, mostly uh, energy and specifically oil and gas, uh, where there are equities that are just wildly mispriced relative to the underlying commodities. And then secondly, uh, an area that I think is most for better or for worse, uncorrelated over the next few years is litigation. We have some major litigation uh, efforts underway. Some I can talk about, some I can't yet. Uh, and uh, that's going to kind of make our luck between those two. And we have this and that elsewhere. You know, I'm certainly always paying attention to the M&A market. I'm very involved in researching arbitrage. My arbitrage book's as light as it's ever been. Um, kind of directional bets and equities are pretty light outside of litigation and outside of oil and gas. If those two areas work well, I would have a hard time hurting myself elsewhere, just how we're sized and scaled. If those two things go badly, I'd have a hard time uh, saving my bacon elsewhere. Uh, uh, again, just how we're sized. So those are kind of our two firm uh, exposures. And then we have this and that is, you know, opportunistically things arise. Why would you say that things are light on the ARB side these days? Um, twofold. One is uh, deal financing was in havoc as interest rates rose. We can handle high interest rates, but we can't really handle uncertainty and fluctuation. So just deal financing, kind of the market was closed. That was really hard on LBOs um, and psychologically hard on deal target boards. You know, the boards kind of tend to have this funny sense that you should pay me for a premium to the best I ever traded during my tenure, even if half the value has gone away, right? It's So it's hard when things are fluctuating on the credit side to have uh, a very active deal market. And then when you do, we have a fanatical regulatory regime in Washington, which is unlike anything we've seen in prior Republican or Democrat administrations. I was very close to a lot of the Obama Democrats. Um, I found them sane, sober, free on their own recognizance, normal humans who you could do business with, uh, maybe more um, skeptical of 
MA than some of the Republicans. But you had a big change with Biden. Uh, Biden's pretty checked out, maybe generally, but certainly from administrative state enforcement of regulatory minutiae. That's never been his beat. It certainly is not his beat now to any extent. All his pressure comes from his left. So if you kind of place him as a pretty normal Democrat, call him the center of the Democrat uh, kind of spectrum. So kind of the middle of the left of center of American politics, all his pressure comes from his left. So from uh, progressive, I guess they like progressive more than they used to like liberal. But if you look at kind of Liz Warren, activists um, and then combine that with this idea of all of government basically weaponizing these individual bureaus for other political purposes outside of their statutory mandate, punishing their enemies. Uh, and so you have just absurd cases being brought where if it's a company they don't like, they'll just sue them for anything they can think of. And MA is always an opportunity. Uh, now, interestingly, while you have these kind of hipster uh, woke uh, uh, fanatics running the FTC and the DOJ. The judges are not that way. Democrat and Republican judges are just down the line been tossing out this administration's cases one after another. So they're really hurting their credibility. And uh, but they're slowing down deals. And not only is it stricter, but it's sort of unanalyzable because it's it's like judging somebody else's religion. It's not yours and you don't want to insult them or something, but also it's not something that your own framework is going to necessarily be all that valid and understanding. It's not like all the other administrations throughout history that were based in economics and the law, where all you had to do is understand economics and the law, and you could second guess more or less, nine times out of 10, what they were going to do. That has nothing, to, this administration has nothing to do with the law, nothing. You would get every single thing wrong, and you'd be surprised every day if you try to study law and economics and understand what, um, uh, uh, the FTC chairman does next. Uh, she punishes enemies of this administration near or far with any tools necessary uh, with uh, zeal uh, and without statutory mandate. So it's uh, harder to want to jump in front of that. Now, because the cases are so absurd, uh, as absurd as they were with Spectrum Group, which was a huge position of ours, uh, as absurd as it was uh, with uh, Activision, which still is a huge position of ours, uh, these judges are getting it right. And uh, the judges, you know, have a real process, you know, the FTC can just make something up and they uh, uh, really are completely, they're unelected, they're without recourse, they have no uh, uh, procedural way to affect them within the FTC. But these judges don't like getting uh, overruled. And they're just serious people, maybe the profession attracts serious people. But uh, since COVID, you know, everything's recorded. It's very easy remotely to kind of track a bunch of cases at the same time. And young, old, uh, Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, men, women, all these just every dem demographic difference and every level of specialization. Some people happen to be experts in antitrust. Uh, some have, you know, in the case of Activision, the uh, judge had actually recently done an antitrust case on this, a little bit of a different antitrust case involving activism. She was already pretty expert. Other cases, they've never done antitrust, probably outside of class in law school. And they've just been great. I mean, they've been, um, even if you can't analyze what the heck the administration is doing, if you just pay attention uh, to the facts in the law, 
these judges have been getting it all right. So the litigation has been a great opportunity for me to really apply logic and uh, put a lot of capital to work. So let's expand on that. How are you thinking about litigation? Sure. So I like uh, being in ones where I think there's kind of a plausible valuation um, if I'm dead wrong. You know, I like to survive. I like to um, tie. I like mediocrity. I like getting my money back. I like not being poor if I'm wrong about everything. You know, so uh, clearly you're not going to necessarily be outlandishly uh, awarded with gaudy riches, uh, right or wrong, uh, that would be optimal. But I can kind of put up with, you know, paying close to somewhere around $40 for Spectrum brands that I think is worth kind of more or less that without a deal that I thought was a fabulous deal for them. And clearly the right antitrust decision to approve. And it didn't even matter anyway. So the government kind of had an incorrect case about a really stupid point they were trying to make. Uh, So it was kind of one of these things where Factually, they were wrong. They were wrong on the law. But even if they're right, it was kind of just the weirdest, like, pedantic thing to worry about, kind of high-end door locks. Uh, I mean, normal people can buy normal door locks whenever they want, super competitive market. This is going to have a slight concentration in high-end, kind of complicated door locks. And um, several times a day listening to this case, because it was a boring case, and it came right after Elon, which was endlessly entertaining for me. I was listening to this. I'm like, look, I think we're going to be right. I think we're going to make a ton of money. I think this makes sense. I think it's going well, but it's so freaking boring listening to why does the government even care? Like, don't don't they have anything better to do? Do we really have a government that's so big that we can just everything anybody can come up with? We can spend millions of dollars and months of our limited life expectancy discovering whether this company is going to dominate high-end door locks, which by the way, if Amazon spent three seconds on this, they would crush them like a bug if they ever wanted to. So we would be so lucky. I mean, I whispered this, I guess I can say it now. We don't have the position anymore, but we whispered like, I only wish we almost had pricing power in this business. Like it was, it was not even, it was not even an approximation of the truth Uh, in any event, but anywhere close to 40, you knew you had a a free roll that you'd win something you'd probably win. Uh, And then it traded to uh, doubled almost. Uh, I think about touched 80, close to 80. It's high 70s now, which is, you know, it's fine. That's about what it's worth with the deal that they were able to get done. Uh, Twitter was, you know, huge position of ours last year was definitely a case where that was more of an actual speculation. Like we would have been properly screwed if we had lost that. Um, But that was an extreme case of the entirety of American corporate law and contracts resting on something that if that failed, might as well burn it all down because then contracts wouldn't have meant anything. Um, But uh, for the most part, we want to be in where we're kind of okay without a big win. Um, Burford is a case we're very uh, involved with against Argentina, big position of mine. And without that win, without that full win expressed the way we think it's going to be, it's kind of okay here, you know, kind of okay here. And with it, it's spectacular. Um, and that's kind of where we like to be kind of have a half dozen roles between mediocre and spectacular. So our winners pay for our losers with some left over, but our losers are either tolerable or if I'm just playing very small, very, very small. I mean, because I write, because I get bored and get into mischief. Sometimes we really do something speculative, but we're talking basis points there, not percentages. I know Activision, you mentioned them. They're a big focus of yours. You want to talk to listeners how you're thinking about Activision? 
Sure. Um, there was an incredibly weak case in the U.S. by American legal and procedural standards. There was actually not a big deal risk. There was a hiccup, which is the uh, the EU, Europe was going very well, got approved. But the UK has procedurally an incredibly strong regulator. You know, the, you can kind of see philosophically a lot of the differences in how Americans think about this thing, which is, you know, even when the government comes after you, in theory, it's still their burden and they have to prove their case in front of a judge, which this government, I mean, they were, they beclowned themselves. I mean, they had a uh, a joke of an expert. Uh, they were certain what would happen in the future, but they didn't even understand just basic industry dynamics today. And they acted as if they were a agent for a multi-billion dollar multinational Japanese competitor in a way that uh, at one point I thought that that had this had a government role that they would have had to actually filed uh, as uh, acting as an agent of a foreign entity here. I mean, they basically had another company write this complaint um, and it was weak. Uh, the judge's decision was perfect. Uh, but the only hiccup was um, right before all of this happened, um, the head of the FTC met with the head of, with the CMA and the CMA blocked this. The CMA, the, the British uh, uh, analogs, where it's very, very hard to successfully overcome CMA challenges. And so we basically, uh, it appears, uh, consistent with using a foreign government that had weaker uh, uh, due process uh, to prove a case that we were unable to prove uh, in the U.S. against two American companies on behalf of a foreign company. Um, so that's however corrupt it is. Uh, they claimed, oh, no, we didn't tell them what to do. We didn't discuss this. Sure. If you lined up every American out of 340 million Americans last in line for believing me, if I said, oh, I was kind of meeting with this uh, counterpart in business, uh, you know, we went to Bohemia Club and we were having cocktails, but don't worry, we didn't discuss pricing a week before we both set pricing. She'd be the last one in America to believe that, right? So she hates companies, she hates capitalism, she hates deals, hates, I don't know, America. But uh, the idea that she can then go and secretly collude with a foreign regulator and we're just supposed to go by her say-so. Now, we were gonna get a lot of discovery on all that and that kind of changed things real quickly. Um, but so uh, clearly, uh, you know, at the least it was the Americans saying, um, you know, well, uh, well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest and the CMA knew what to do. And at most it was actively explicitly coordinated. Whenever anything looks this corrupt, my history in observing situations like this is it tends to be the most tawdry, the least evil secret mastermindy and the most just like debased as possible. I don't know if it's very debased or slightly debased. However, the CMA did the bidding of the FTC. That's unwinding quickly now that the FTC lost. It was actually in this tribunal review of the CMA decision where you really heard a lot of the back and forth um, uh, between the two sides. Weirdly, the CMA and the companies were really on the same page. The tribunal didn't want to just 
remove procedurally the decision to block it. Um, but I think it's quite likely that they'll be given some kind of SOP to uh, change that decision. Uh, I strongly suspect that Microsoft turned to Activision and said, hey, give me some division that we're going to shut down anyways, and we'll throw ourselves at the feet of the CMA and beg for forgiveness and see if we can divest, you know, we were going to fire Bob, right? We'll divest Bob. Like, let's let's give them Bob. Like, we were going to fire him anyways. Uh, maybe we don't have to pay workmen's co work, workers' comp if we do that. Um, but it's, you know, it is a $4.28 net spread. That's 56% annualized return. If it closes in the middle of next month, it will. Um, maybe there's a little delay. Who knows? But, um, you know, I think the funny thing about the tribunal was if they were very quick, they would have not had to shell out another dollar uh, dividend. If they were very slow, I think it's reasonably likely that the company would simply close around the CMA and move those uh, uh, businesses to Luxembourg. Um, they were kind of in the middle, so we we're kind of in this, in this uh, delay period right now, but I don't think there's a lot of substance or deal risk to it. Obviously, it could be proved humiliatingly, embarrassingly, quickly wrong uh, if the thing gets blocked. But I just don't think it's going to get blocked. I think it's going to get done. I think you can make over $4 a share. And unlike the Twitter situation where we were really betting a diabolical downside if we were owned this, we just, in that case, we were just invested in the contract. We believed in the contract. We believed the contract was worth $54.20. We didn't think the company was worth much of anything. Activision's doing great. Activision's, you know, worth um, a lot. Um, I, I was surprised that they put up with such a small deal bump of just a buck. I think that was kind of an agency problem. These are people who are going to be working together soon, and I don't think they care that much about their shareholders anymore. Um, but it's worth um, it's worth quite a lot. So I think, you know, make four bucks, risk ten or fifteen, assuming there's not something other other than what we know that's wrong with it that would cause it to break. But I think it's, you know, probably 90% chance or so that it closes, maybe 95. Do you have a sense of the timeline on that? Yeah, next month or so. Mm -hmm. With like the, before the October 18th date? Yeah. 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 And, and if not, then give us another dollar dividend every month. Um, uh, maybe be a little maybe be a little ballsier about asking for a serious uh, recut if we need more time. I don't think we're going to, um, but demand something for it. Do you have thoughts on Microsoft? No, um, I would say I got to hear a lot from the management kind of online and offline over the past several months and was just consistent. Maybe when you don't have a reason to look behind the scenes of a big a uh, tech company, um, maybe they're all like this, but uh, I don't know, it's you know a $2 trillion company. I guess it's good that the people running it are good, but the people running Microsoft are really good. CEO is really impressive. Um, the uh, guy who runs uh, Xbox gaming is really impressive. They're, um, they're, they're, just, they're top people. I was glad to see them standing up for themselves and their company and their industry, an industry that's dynamic, that's completely transformed itself every few years. And amongst the perverse thing that was about this government um, in some combination of stupid and evil is that they would have frozen the state of this industry dozens of times along the way in the way that they're saying, oh my gosh, I'm scandalized. 
this is how you could use this pricing power now if we were to not freeze the state of this market. Well, these markets are very dynamic. They change all the time. Uh, and uh, I, I feel like Microsoft really understands that. I feel like Microsoft's really ahead of the curve on a lot of things right now. So I'm really, really impressed by the people um, involved. Um, they're just kind of cool. They um, they handled themselves so well on the stand. Um, uh, this Larry, this lady uh, Sarah Bond that I hadn't uh, known about before. Um, one of the top Microsoft execs, just like they've fantastic people. Um, not edgy, actionable. I have no direct position in Microsoft. Probably should have through all these years. Impressed by the company and think Activision will be in good hands. Like Twitter, once I get cashed out of it, my interest will decline by 99.99%, but uh, wish them well. All right, talk to us about energy. What are you seeing over there? I think thematically, my job is always to find arbitrariness, to find uh, counterparties. Um, I always assume if you come to me with really any bet that you wanna make me, uh, Reina, I'm gonna say no, because I'm gonna say, well, I first, suspect that you're at least as smart as I am, then I suspect you have at least as good judgment as I do. And I suspect if you want to bet me, you've worked at least as hard as a, as I have on it. And then I won't say this about you, but I'll say this generally, what if somebody's cheating? And what if they win all the bets they cheat and say they're just cheating 1% of the time? So I assume that I'm going to have an expectancy based on, I don't know, mid 40s percentage likelihood of winning stuff my default against kind of fair games. So what I really love is counterparties, not where I'm pitting my judgment against somebody else, which sounds like an awful idea. Uh, I like finding somebody who's constrained, who comes to me and says, I have to do this. I have to buy this. I have to sell this. Uh, in my PA, which is much, much, much smaller than my fund, all of my investments are in the dark export market where most retail brokers literally say, you have to sell this security if you want to trade it. You may not buy it. And I'm there just like hoovering stuff up at a tiny fraction of their value uh, where many people have literally contractually have to sell something uh, or indexes that have to buy it. I, I like constrained counterparties, people who are forced to do something. And I'm just kind of making my way in this world as a service provider who just takes the other side of a trade because they need somebody to take the other side of the trade. That opportunity today is in energy, uh, especially oil and gas, and especially situations where you're a service provider to uh, ESG mandated funds. Uh, it's not rational or self-seeking in the economic case, but as an agent, it might be completely rational and self-seeking. They might figure, well, they're making more in fees than they're giving up in returns and I can pick up the returns. Uh, so oil, gas, to some extent, uranium, uh, other kind of real stuff, energy, and areas that have an environmental impact. Uh, of course, when you're talking about the secondary stock market, and when you're talking about individual projects, the impact on the global environment is zero. Uh, because you just take projects that were going to be one place, you move them someplace else, uh, you have somebody else own something, and a company that is cash flowing doesn't need to raise new capital. The secondary market has no impact whatsoever on production. Um, but you have waves of situations in history. I don't know how similar this is in other countries, but I can think of many examples in the US 
where a political regime tries to co-opt the private sector because it wants to use the private sector balance sheet as well as the public on behalf of some uh, political goal. And in doing so tends to vilify a company or an industry. And in doing so, when they settle or come to terms, has a sort of fascistic public partnership, public-private partnership with them that ends up wildly accruing to the benefit of the equity holders in situations where they can't necessarily do capex, they can't necessarily um, fight the regime, but they can be co-opted in a way that if it were a private contract and not the government, it would be a legitimate antitrust violation. And the examples I would give are the master, uh, the NSA with tobacco in 1999 ended up being incredibly good for tobacco investors because they basically weren't allowed to spend money on all sorts of things like advertising. They weren't allowed to make health claims against each other. And the U.S. government, or at least the states, basically become limited partners of Philip Morris. And so 100 years from now, people will be smoking Marlboro Reds and Philip Morris and uh, Altria will be spewing uh, distributions to shareholders over this. And so it was really good for them. A United Health and Obamacare. Uh, the, the companies that were supposed to be the pariahs uh, got rich. Politicians, they got rich too, uh, but on both sides of that trade. Uh, but they were insiders, they were partners, and at the superficial rhetorical level, they were villainized. But being the villain is a great deal, and being the villain is going to be a great deal in oil and gas energy right now, because the last thing anybody's going to do is CapEx. They're not going to start new projects. The, the most cyclical of cyclical industries is going to have the cycle broken, where these guys, when prices are really high, do a bunch more projects. When they're really low, they stop. They kind of flail back and forth. Well, at $80 a barrel right now, prices could double and they'll sit on their hands. They'll say, okay, we'll distribute all the money out to investors. Could double again, distribute all the money out to investors. They're being screamed at by the politicians to stop doing what they're doing. Um, the politicians want to strangle supply they are goosing demand with endless fiscal and monetary stimulus, and they want demand to skyrocket, they want supply to go away, and then they complain if prices are high. Um, so it's completely a numerate combination of preferences. Uh, but if anybody in the world understands them, the decision makers in the oil and gas companies do, and people who have tortured shareholders for years because they just keep, they like to drill. They like they like uh, they like their business, and they're somewhat um, uh, insensitive to timing these things well. They're going to be forced to because they know they're not supposed to build. You're not supposed to build refineries. You're not supposed to drill for oil and gas. And intermittent energy uh, is a peak a supplement in certain geographies at certain times a year, but it is not a substitute. So if it's really, really sunny, uh, that's fine. If it's really, really windy, uh, but sometimes uh, the sun sets or is clouded over and some days are still. And so, you know, maybe we have a consensus forming kind of a bipartisan across ideologies in favor of uh, nuclear. And we have a big position in physical uranium uh, to cover our bases there. Uh, but until then, there is a multi-decade delta between rhetoric and reality. And we've actually placed our policy bets on the rhetoric. So we're saying we want this and that and the other thing, 
but we're decades away from being able to replace it. And everybody uh, that votes seems to want to be uh, able to turn the lights on at night and wants to be cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Um, and the fact that this past year had an incredibly mild European winter kind of pushed off the reckoning by 12 months, um, but not necessarily more than that. And so I think oil and gas is terrific. And I think a lot of the equities are trading at big kind of discounts to where the commodities imply they should be at, um, especially if they're going to become kind of uh, cash returning machines instead of drilling machines. Mm -hmm. We've seen a big resurgence lately in energy. Do you feel like that's going to keep incrementally going up in that sector? Yeah, just starting. I mean, I would say demand's really hard to forecast. And so who the heck knows? Quarter to quarter, I think, you know, you know whether or not we have a recession and how uh, China's kind of post-COVID reopening, kind of how fast they bounce back, a lot of things like that matter. Uh, are important, maybe not that knowable, or at least knowable by me. But I think that the supply constraints, the intentional supply constraints on projects that take a long time to turn back on if you turn them off, I think it's going to make the supply picture tricky for oil and gas. And um, I think the likelihood is prices are much, much higher. And that the likelihood is that uh, at some point, you get much more of the value of their uh, companies in this area recognized kind of upstream oil and gas companies, but I really don't care. I, I don't care just like I didn't care with tobacco and I didn't care with United Health, and I don't care if uh, the market cares as long as we're getting distributions, right? Like I can get my money back uh, in uh, M&A and regular special dividends um, and buybacks, uh, and if I have to wait for those, uh, fine. If I have to wait for those, it'll make it easier for me to get bigger. Um, I don't have to worry about literally everybody in the world, but me could adopt ESG as a religion and that's fine. Last time you were on, I believe it was in May, you were talking about Innovate as your top pick. Do you want to update listeners on that one? Sure. So uh, we've owned this one for a while. I think this is one that we bought last fall. Um, we uh, It's a leveraged equity. It could easily be worth zero. Uh, and more easily in this high interest rate environment. Uh, so call it like zero is the downside. Like I think that's fair uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the, you can also play the bonds. Like the bonds are probably, you know, uh, a less spicy way to play this, but they're pretty yieldy. Um, and it's a weird hodgepodge of spectrum uh, engineering and life sciences. Uh, spectrum I hope they can monetize at some point. I don't particularly care about it. has some value. Uh, the uh, engineering business is an okay business. It's a little bit uh, chunky, a big kind of fancy, expensive projects, you know, kind of retractable stadium roofs, that kind of thing. Um, uh, it's been, I, I guess, let's just say all the bad news and the good news, because that's an easy way to organize the conversation. The bad news is interest rates are higher if you have a highly leveraged equity that puts more stress on them. And uh, engineering has been a little softer than I would have hoped and expected. My, my thesis in this is that engineering kind of pays for the debt and has leaves some residual equity value over. Um, none of that yet. Yeah, we're not the punchline yet. That's not what I'm here for. But that has been a little softer than I would have said. Uh, good news. They've made a, they've been paying their coupons like the, they've been servicing the debt. And for better or for worse, let me put this as a question mark. 
um, management's far more confident than I am in their ability to manage their balance sheet. I kind of like management scared. I kind of like pessimists and people who are worried about filing for bankruptcy. I think there's some kind of uh, uh, counter indicator sometime. I, optimists make me nervous. Uh, but uh, these guys think they're fine. They think I'm a worrier. Um, I would put in more money if they needed to get recapitalized. I would put more money if they had a big uh, equity offering. They need to sell equity or assets, full stop. The balance sheet is not stable over the next several years. They know this. The people in charge uh, think they have time and want to kind of sort through what they want to be left with and what they want to jettison. Uh, they don't seem to have any interest in raising equity right now. That's fine just as well. They're not going to get diluted here. Um, but all of this is to pay for a few shots on goal. Um, so, you know, the stock price was 70 cents, then it was three bucks and change. Now it's a buck and change. Like, I think it's, you know, um, reasonably likely to be um, something where we're just going to see the shots on goal are all in the life sciences. There's a couple uh, small subsidiaries just because they're kind of buried in this, you know, it's $131 million market cap company. So it's just this sliver of a market cap for the equity holders. And there's all sorts of different parts within that. But the shots on goal that they could put this year and possibly score on could be worth you know, a multiple of the market cap. Um, uh, the one, uh, MetaBeacon is the one that I'm most interested in. That's at the FDA now. I think it's going to get approved. I think it's going to get to market. I think it could become a consistently common product for medicine. And uh, it has it has the kind of razor, razor blade uh, uh, model of uh, the uh, marker uh, will have to be continually resold. Now, you could just flip that today and solve the balance sheet problem. But I don't think the insiders want to. I think the insiders, my sense is that MetaBeacon is what they want to be left with because that could be $10 a share or $20 a share. I mean, that could be a, a spectacular bonanza. So I think they're waiting to kind of manage and maybe sell R2, maybe sell one of the other things to kind of fix the balance sheet and uh, probably be left with MetaBeacon, maybe spin it or have some kind of, you know, rename the company MetaBeacon, have, have that the focus heading into 2024. Um, I think it could be spectacularly valuable. Might not. Might not get approved. Might not get adopted. But I think it'll be approved. I think it'll be adopted. I think upon approval, the stock price doubles. I think upon adoption, it doubles again um, and could become um, uh, a great one. So uh, TBD, you know, we just don't know yet. Um, and uh, not a lot of news, you know, but I think over, you know, we've seen the data uh, we've seen what they've submitted to the FDA. Uh, it looks not just uh, really robust and convincing, but robust, convincing, and largely onto some minutia that's left before final approval. So we think final approval is in great shape for this year. Appreciate that update. And uh, thanks for always sharing so much uh, actionable insights with us. Really appreciate it, Chris. Oh, uh, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Um, anybody can follow up. I'm easy to find on Seeking Alpha. Um, always grateful to have a conversation, always something to talk about. And uh, uh, so thank you, Rena. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking again sometime. Absolutely. You run Sifting the World on Seeking Alpha. Anywhere else besides Seeking Alpha that people can find you? 
Um, I try to keep all of my actionable investment contact content on Seeking Alpha. Um, so you can find me there. So there's, I guess the three categories are sifting the world for investment ideas, uh, Rangely Capital, which, you know, it's a hedge fund. I can't kind of market it or talk about it too much outside, but people can, people who want us to manage capital can uh, do that. And then thirdly, I have my kind of everything other than investing I have uh, called Valley Tudo, which is uh, my um, uh, uh, other stuff I'm doing. So mountaineering, MMA, uh, CrossFit, uh, uh, and trail running. So, um, so stuff that I kept wanting to talk to investors about, but that's not what they're here for. So I kind of try to shut up about that stuff and I have that separate. So Valley Tudo, uh, sifting the world and range the capital and, um, uh, available to chat about Activision or innovate or anything else with people interested. Very good. A Renaissance man. Chris, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.